Well, it's always a joy for me every time I am passing through the city to stop by one or two of the assemblies in the Florida area. And as always, it's a joy to come by Boulevard Bible Chapel. I'll take a couple of minutes. Uh, I was introduced at a conference as a speaker, and they said, this is Brother Hart, the speaker. And let me tell you something about him. If you cut him on his left hand, he will bleed brethren. You know what that means? But if you cut him on his right hand, he will bleed Elim Basic School. So, that's how close Elim Basic School is to my heart. And I'm going to use this privilege of saying to you how glad I am that this assembly has been fellowshipping with us with Elim Basic School. I, I always travel with some information about the Elim Basic School, and if you have never heard about it or you'd like to get a little more about it, I have some brochures with me, and after the meeting, you could check with me and see what's happening at Elim Basic School. I'm going to share one little thought with you to show you how the Lord works. Um, month of April, I got a call from the Land Lakes Bible Chapel up in North Florida. And uh, the secretary said to me, Brother Hart, we did get your information in the month of June, but here is what. The assembly is trusting to have Elim Basic School as our missionary project for the month of April. So I said, isn't that wonderful? Could you send me some information as to what happened to the school since last June when we sent them some information? And they fellowship with us at the school to keep it going. So I sent it up to them, sent some stuff, and they asked for, what a request that you would have for the school, that we might pray for, that the Lord might supply your need. I sat by my desk, fixed up everything, dropped it in the post, and five days later, I got a call back from the secretary. And when I heard she on the line, I said, did I do something wrong? And she says, no, Brother Hart. What I'd like you to tell us is, what else do you need apart from some computers for the computer lab we have? Because the computer lab we have at school in Jamaica, there were 14 of them, and they had seen their days. Those of you who are involved with the computer, you know that when it's 14 and 15 years old, you know you're out of line. So the guy who looks after it for us said to me last year, Well, the heart, you're going to have to get some other computers. And we sifted and sifted, and a year had passed by, we couldn't get one. I said to the girl, I says, why would you ask me what else do we need? Our greatest need is the computers. She says, you don't have a need for the computers anymore. And I says, repeat that again? And when she repeated it, I just busted into her ears, praise the Lord. I says, tell me, how come? She says, she used to work for a company in Orlando called Computer Missionary Fellowship. She went and she called the guy who used to be her boss and explained that we got the school in Jamaica and we need some computers. And he said, I don't normally send them out to schools, but guess what? You can get up to 25 computers for the school. Then I said, another praise the Lord. But they do not package them. They do not ship them out. So I said, well, listen, could you hold them put them together for me until June when I'm on my way to Jamaica. So this past week, I flew into Fort Lauderdale. 
sat in one of the wagons with my brother-in-law. We ran up to Orlando and we picked up 21 computers. We have them labeled in the, in the mini wagon for shipment to Jamaica tomorrow. I hope to get them to the airport, ship them out in the morning, and I'll be taking the evening flight into Kingston. We're catering to 188 kids from three to six years old. And God just opened the way for the computers. It is going to cost us quite a bit for the air ticket for those computers. The cargo fee is going to be quite a bit, but guess what? Everything else has come to us without any cost. God is still on the throne. And when he's in something, you don't need anybody else. And I want to thank the assembly and individuals who have helped us immensely. I was asked, could you just do us a little Bible study on Ephesians chapter 6? Now, whenever you do a Bible study and you come to the last chapter, you generally run over a little bit of a summary. So we're going to take two minutes and talk about a little bit of the summary. As Paul writing to the Ephesian church... And um, in it, he opened up with a salutation, and he says, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that was a salutation. And then he opened up as the first thing he wrote about the believers standing in grace. Chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 3, verse 21. Those two, three chapters telling about the believers standing in grace. And one of the verses says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is what? The gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. And then he moves on to the second portion. Uh, the walk and the service of the believer. From chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 5, verse 17. And this is what he said. See then that he walked circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time, all because the days are evil. And then he came to the third section, which he says, let's take a look at the walk of the spirit-filled believer. When he begins in chapter 5, verse 18, to cover the other chapters, chapter 6, up to verse 22. And in that walk of the spirit-filled believer, the first section he mentioned was, was the first, the inner life of the be spirit-filled believer. When, what do we read? We read, be not, in verse 18, be not drunken with wine, wherein is excess, but be what? Be filled with the Spirit of God. I recognize that it is the blessed Holy Spirit that convicts men and women of sin. And when he or she decides to turn their lives over to the Lord Jesus, it is the blessed Holy Spirit that operates the work of salvation in their hearts. And after that has taken place, guess what he does? He seals us into the body of Christ. And then he takes up his permanent resident in the life of the believer. So when I, I have students ask, Brother Hart, you got the Holy Spirit and you're ready. What do you mean by the filling? The filling is, what do you do with the blessed Holy Spirit? Do you give Him precedence in every department of your life? That's what it means to be filled with the very Spirit of God. There are so many of God's believing children that we find. They have the blessed Holy Spirit, but they're holding back certain sections of their life. Although he's on a permanent residence in their life, nothing is going to take him out. But guess what? 
they will not allow him to cover a certain section of their life. Thereby, they'll never be filled, and guess what? Sometimes never be used. Being filled with the blessed Holy Spirit is one of the basis of being used of God to bring glory and honor to his name. Sin in the life, whether it's big sin, middle sin, little sin, very, very small sin, it hinders the filling of the blessed Holy Spirit. So I like when the word says that we have got an advocate with God. We can get to him and says, listen, Lord Jesus, I've sinned. And would you forgive me of that sin? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's done what? He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us for all unrighteousness. He has made the provision just in case. So there's no reason why God's people cannot be filled with the very Spirit of God. So Paul writes this to the believing child of God on the walk of the Spirit. It is the inner life of the Spirit-filled believer that he brings through being filled with the Spirit. Then he goes on, a second thought in the uh, walk of the Spirit-filled believer is that he takes on, secondly, the married life of the Spirit-filled believers, illustrating in Christ and the church in chapter 5. You can read it in verse 22 to 23. It means that um, husbands love your wives. How should I love my wife? Like how Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then it goes on, he says, wives, subject yourself to your husbands. In other words, you must live lives as submitted to him. And I've said this in our marriage and prime relationships sections is this, is that any woman where she's being loved by a husband just like how Christ loved the church, she will have no problem being submissive to the husband. And I didn't get an amen. <laughs> Let me tell you what. Any husband that will love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, you'll be willing to do anything for that man. Amen. Honor him. Now I praise the Lord. I can continue now. <laughs> Um, here's it, how Christ loved the church, there will be no separation. Did you see that? If I am going to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I recognize there will be no separation. I'm persuaded, says Paul, writing to the Roman church, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature is going to be able to separate me from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's no separation. And so he gives us a little touch of the married life. Um... And listen, husbands, you're better reverent that wife because Peter says to us, guess what? If you don't reverent her, your prayers may never be answered. For that husband, keep in mind, you better honor the wife you've got if you want to make sure that your prayers are going to be answered. But then there's the inner life of the believing child of God that's filled with the Spirit. He goes on the married life. And now we come to Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 24. And he moves into the domestic life of the spirit-filled believer. It opens up in verse 1 to 3. And it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Children are to obey their parents, says verse 1. Obey means to hear and to heed to that which is heard. And the verb there is the present imperative tense, which means that obedience is to be habitual. It means that obedience should be constant. You know why? Because the scripture says, because it is a right thing to do. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Every time I think of obedience, I have to think of the song that puts it so aptly. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and will all those who will trust and obey. It is the basis of weighing, enjoying the Christian life, being filled with the Spirit of God if we seek by God's grace to be obedient. But not only are children to obey their parents, look at verse 2. Children are to honor their parents. And the word honor means to treat with respect and reverence. This requires training from a very early stage. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 tells us this way. Train up a child in the way he should grow, and then when he's old he will not depart from it. I read a caption one day when I was looking at some studies with it. And this guy says, train up a child in the way he should grow and go that way yourself. There is so many parents that are saying, do as I say, but not as I do. And it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how young the kids are. They get it quicker than you can imagine. And the scripture says, train up the child in the way he should grow. Don't start training the child at 15, 16 years of age. You would have missed it all. Hear the children. Honor your parents. And in order for them to honor their parents, they got to be taught from very early to honor their parents. I happen to come across with some folks. And if you ever hear the children addressing the parents... You wonder what is going to happen to this world tomorrow. Parents have just stepped back and let the children cater to their better judgment. The children does not have better judgment. You know what Proverbs says? It says foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. And I know that some folks are not going to like me when I say this. But the scripture says so. Only the rod of correction will drive it out. But you're not going to drive it out at 16, 17 years of age. You have gone too far to allow that kid to have had better judgment. So you're going to have to train up the child. That's this, um, the way that the parents have got to do. And then there's a third thing. There's always a reward if you look into God's Word. Verse 3. It will be well with you, says God's Word. He's giving you a guarantee. If you do the right thing on one side of the coin, then the next side of the coin will give you the reward. It will be well with you. And then it goes on to say, and you will live long on the earth. It's a guarantee. You get one section fixed up, the other section will follow immediately. Coming back in the book of Exodus chapter 20, when the commandment was given, what does it say? It says, honor 
your father and your mother that your days may be how long? They may be long on this earth. So that's for the children, the domestic life of the spirit-filled believer. Then it moves on now to the fathers. And that is chapter 6 we're looking at. And look at verse 4. What does it say? It says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's for the fathers. I read an article not too long ago about juvenile delinquency, written by one of the past FBI agents. And he says, this delinquency is rising, even although a lot of folks are saying, no, it is not. Yes, it is, he says. And the secular work is blaming parents why they are delinquent. But you know what the scripture does? The scripture puts the blame exactly where it belongs, particularly fathers, because God made them to be the head of the home. And they have ran out from that responsibility. I happen to have a teacher as my niece in San Antonio. She teaches second grade um, students. And she says, Uncle Wally, 70% of 25 kids that she teaches, 70% is a single parent, which is a mom, not a dad. And only 30% has got mom and dad living in the house. Do you see the world that we're going into and what new children are being brought up to be? Children, uh, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. That's God's commandment to the father. Consider the teaching of this commandment. you got the negative side. Provoke not your children to wrath. The word provoke means to punish while angry or to satisfy a passion. The worst thing you could say to a kid growing up is, you ain't going to be any use to anybody. And you would have nailed and nailed into the casket of their future. But on the positive side, he says, don't provoke them, but bring them up. This implies an early beginning and a continuous action. Bring them up in the nurture to feed them with the nourishment of God's a word. Back in the old days of the Israelites, what do we read in Deuteronomy? It says, teach them in the morning and teach them in the noon and when? Teach them at night. Teach them the word of God. Teach them how God had delivered this nation. Let them learn that early for the rest of their lives that they've got a God that is able to take care of them. And then when you come over to, um, I'd say, 1 Peter. Peter says, on the spiritual end of it. As newborn babes, you desire the sincere milk of the word to do what? To grow thereby. And that's how God is saying to every father, watch out, not just for the negative, but for the positive, and bring them up in the admonition of the Lord too. And this means is to set them up and to make them straight or to establish them by the word of God. I like how 119 Psalm verse 9 and 11 says it this way. It says, Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his ways, but taking heed to what? The word of God. Thy word, says the psalmist, have I hid in my heart, that I might not do what? Sin against thee. That's what the fathers are supposed to do. That's the considering of the teaching of the command. But the type of father that is able to carry through this demand must be a father that is filled with the very spirit of God. He must be a born-again believer. There's no doubt about that. Because the natural man cannot understand the things of, that are spiritual. 
And that's what's in God's Word. He must be consecrated. No man who is following the Lord afar off is able to bring their children up in the nurture, fear, and admonition of God. And he must have a proper sense of values concerning eternal and spiritual things, as Matthew puts it so nicely. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all things shall be added unto you. A lot of folks are putting the cart before the horse. They're trying to add all things without seeking God. And so God is saying to the fathers, first, consider this command. You need to bring them up in the nurture, fear, and admonition of these. Secondly, you've got to be a father that will be filled with the very spirit of God. And then, I like everything of this that Scripture says. It carries the results. First, that father will deliver his own self from a God-given responsibility that he has if he takes in the command as he ought. Secondly, he'll probably see his children become born again into the family of God. And lastly, third, your child will bring delight to your soul instead of grief to your heart. I will just close off that little section of the domestic life of the father by saying this to you this morning. Don't ever sacrifice the home for the church. Long before the church was brought into being, God instituted the home. And there are so many men, spiritual men, love the Lord. God has given them a job to get done and they take priority of the job over their family. And guess what? They lose their kids. They know exactly what to do, but they don't do what they're supposed to do. And remember what Solomon said? He says, other people's vineyards I have kept and my own I have left unkept. The family has priority. And let me tell you this now. Is that the training ground for leadership in the church is the family. If the father doesn't know anything about bringing up children under the admonition of the Lord. If the father doesn't know how to love kids, how to discipline kids, how to supply the kids' um, needs as they go, how is he going to operate in the church? So God uses the family as the training base for eldership in your church. And then we go on now from that end of it to the servants. Um, that is in verse 5 to 8. And you will read, Be obedient to your employer, it says in verse 5, as unto Christ. Secondly, don't serve with eye service and men, as men pleases, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And thirdly, work as if you are doing service as to the Lord and not unto men. And guess what it will bring? It will bring rewards when you do it that way. That's God's way. Whatever good you do, the same shall be received of you by the Lord. So many folks are going out to work today and um, it's not what... I can do for the company. They want to find out what can the company do for me? Oh, if we could have it in reverse. We're doing it as unto the Lord. He's at the controls of your life and mine. And nothing happens to the child of God by chance. And he is the master of it all. It leads us to the next thought. 
in, Matthew, in um, chapter 6 and verse 9. It goes now from the servants to the masters. Here's what it says. This is where the golden rule comes into play. Matthew 7 and 12. What does it say? Whatever that men should do to you, do even also unto them. Knowing that your master is looking down from heaven and he is no respecter of persons. If you fill the bill, guess what? God is going to give you the reward. He is watching over each and every one of us. And if we ever get into the place that we become masters, employing servants, make sure we keep in mind, you always dish out to them what you would like to be dished out to you. Because God is at the controls of the reward. It then brings us to the last thought. The warfare of the spirit-filled believer. It begins in verse 10. And here's what Paul says. A thing, things about the warriors. And he speaks of the warriors' powers. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He is the Almighty, the All-Powerful. The all-supreme God of heaven. He has not lost one bit of his power. And I like the caption above my head. What does it say? Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday things are different. And today they are different again. But Jesus will never, never change. He always remains the same. That's the warrior's power. He has the power of throwing this world into existence. But he also has the power of throwing the universe into existence. You talk about power. They tell me not too long ago that the new um, scoping that they are looking into space is showing them some galaxies that they never heard anything of before. And... Um, the scope is getting into areas that they're saying there are thousands of galaxies. They don't have to tell me that. I know that God has got the power to put it there. And I often say, one of the greatest power of the exhibition of God's power that is coming up is when the church of Jesus Christ is raptured. When every grave of everyone that knows Christ as Savior, born again into the family of God and the rapture takes place, Everyone that lies in that grave is going to rise from the dead. Have a tremendous change and we're going to meet him in the air. You can't think of anything more powerful than that. And that is the warrior's power in verse 10. But we have the warrior's foes in verse 12. The spiritual warfare we fight up against. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We are wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is not physical fighting. If we had physical fighting, we'd get all the guns we want, the grenades we want, and we could win those type of battles physically. No. We got principalities and powers that we're fighting against. And we need to understand, as we get more spirit-filled, believing children of God operating, then the warrior's foes is his world going to be multiplying against us. That's what Satan doesn't like to see. 
So God sets out through Paul the Apostle writing to the Ephesian church and he says we've got an armor that we're going to have to have put on ourselves. Verse 11, when you see it. It says, put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. My dad used to have it to say it this way. If you don't take a stand for something, you're going to fall for anything that comes your way. Get it straight. If you don't take a stand for something... You're going to fall for anything that comes your way. So, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. And verse 11 he says, put on the whole arm of God. I like how he puts it, the whole. He didn't say, put on the arm of God. He said, the whole of the arm of God. What is that telling me? That's telling me that I might be able to put on two or three of the pieces. But if you put on two or three of the pieces of the arm of God, you're not going to be able to withstand the wiles of the evil one. We have got to be clothed with the complete armor of God as he writes into this last chapter of to the Ephesian church. Put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13. Stand when you are clothed with the whole armor of God. That's when we are supposed to take our stand. When we are clothed with the whole armor of God. What are we up against? We are up against the world and the flesh and the devil. That is what we are up against as spirit-filled believers. What does the word say? As John wrote in his epistle, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God, the Bible says, abideth for how long? Forever. We are up against a fighting, fighting army of the devil himself. And we need to be clothed in the army of God. And when we are clothed in the army of God, guess what? With the Lord on your side, you've got the victory before the fight begins. Now we go into verse, what is it? Verse 14. The best of truth. You're going to have to put a belt of truth on. That's beginning to dress us now with the armor. We've got to have truth around the waist that binds himself with truth. There must be no dishonesty as we are stand up in the armor for God. There must be no false teaching. There must be no hypocrisy. We must be fully aware that it is truth that we must have belted around us. I think when the doubting Talas came to the Lord and he said, we just don't know the way and what you're telling us about. You're going away to prepare a place for you. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, Thomas, I am the way. Come follow me. Because without me there is no going. And he goes on and he says, Thomas, I am not only the way. I am the truth. Come learn of me. I am the truth. Because without me there is no learning. And he goes on and he says, Thomas, I am the life. Come abide in me, because without me there is no living. 
And the first piece of armor that Paul the Apostle says we should have put on us is the belt of truth around us. It holds us in place. But not only that. The breastplate of righteousness in verse 14 again. What is the breastplate? It's like a metal frame covering over our chest. So the heart is very close to where that covering needs to be because of the firing darts come by and there is no resistance to it, you and I will be dead under the attacks of Satan. And he says, I want you to have the metal covering of the chest of the soldier. It keeps them safe from the enemy's arrows. And this breastplate of plate is made up of righteousness. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. His righteousness can counteract anything that you can think of. But our righteousness, the scripture says, are like filthy rags and it doesn't stand for anything. It's just worth as naught as it ever did, is and will be. It is his righteousness that our breastplate is made of. That he says, I want you to be clothed with this. And then go on to verse 15. Your shoes then. Can you imagine a soldier all ready for battle? And when he goes out, he has got everything fixed upon him. And when he comes down, he doesn't have any shoes on. Oh, good a soldier you think that would be in our regular secular sense. The same thing holds true spiritually. He says, you're going to have the spiritual armor put on you. You're going to need your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So that what? you will be able to carry the best news that the world has ever known is that Christ died for your sins. And trusting Christ as Savior will bring you into the family of God. The greatest news that the ears of men have ever heard is the word that the angels declared. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. What? A Savior? which is Christ the Lord. And we better have the shoes to take forth the gospel of peace to a dying world. And then, not only the shoes, um, you're going to have to have the shield of faith in verse 16. The shield is like a metal plate that goes over the hand of our regular soldiers to counteract the sword of the evil one. And Paul is saying, you need to have the shield of faith better set than the shield of faith that the soldier would use in the practical metal that covers his arm that he can withstand whatever sword that Satan might use. With this, he's able to stop the sword of the enemy from harming him. And the Christian shield is nothing but what? Faith. I said to a lady yesterday, talking to her on the telephone, and I said this to her. I said, you're talking about a lot of faith. Guess what? It's not so much how much faith you got. It's who do you put your faith in? Think about it. Who do you put your faith in? For deliverance, for guidance, for protection, for provision? Nothing but the all-seeing find the faith of God. The Christian's faith, shield is faith. With your faith in God, it keeps sin out of your life. It comes up a defense and strength in the time of life's troubles. 
When I read a story about a boy by the name of Joseph and how he operated, he had so much faith that cared not what you put him through. He was all sold out to God. And I read time and time again in Moses' life, and God was with him. And he wouldn't break that faith. I think of Job with all the sickness that he had, uh, all the destitution that he went into. And his sickness, he couldn't even live in the house. He had to be put outside where the ashes are. His wife came over to him and says, Hey, why don't you just curse God and die? And he said, Woman, you're foolish. And I like his wording. He says, You get good things from the hand of God. He's at my controls of my life. And though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He had a dying faith. A faith in a God that, I'm telling you, it is that type of faith that will withstand the evil one. Think of Abraham. God said to him, get your son, put him on the altar, sacrifice him as a sacrifice unto me. And Abraham said to the boys that went along with him by the wayside, and he said, listen, hold on here. I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And what he said? And will come again. He had a faith in God. That if he had taken that knife. And slayed his son. Burn him in the sacrifice. He turned into ashes. That God was going to put back his son. Right back where he was. That is faith. And God is saying. That's the faith we're needing. As a shield of faith. In being dressed with the armor of God. Then he said in verse 17. There's a helmet of salvation. It covers the head. So delicate with that head. Our salvation in the Lord is a part of our day-by-day warfare with sin. And we need to know that care not what the circumstances that we are going to be putting through, we will never lose our salvation. But if we get out into battle and we do not have the helmet of salvation covering us, guess what? We will fall prey to the enemy. And then lastly, verse 17, he says, There's the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Oh, the power that is in the Word of God. He says it this way. He says, if my word doesn't come to pass, heaven and earth would pass away. We don't want anything stronger than that. The Word of God. When Satan got the Lord Jesus Christ, on the three occasions we read about him, what did he say? Satan, it is written... It is written. It is written. Oh, the power that lies within the word of God. It's same God that is transforming men and women with his word. Used to, is, and will forever be. Oh, the word of God. We can't miss out on it. Only this weapon will give us the victory for the Lord Jesus Christ day after day. And then you know what he closes off in verse 18 to 20. He says, I've got the warrior's resource. Where does it come from? Prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Not only for ourselves, but also for other saints. In essence, when we get into the presence of the Lord, let's not just talk about I, me, and myself in the presence of the Lord. But do remember our fellow man in Christ. And Paul says, you want somebody to pray for? Pray for me. That liberty might be given to me in the proclamation of the gospel. 
And then he closes off in the conclusion in verse 21 and 22. He's sending forth one of his co-workers to give a report to the Ephesians as to what's been happening in the ministry that they're all involved with. And I like the closing of the benediction in verses 23 and 24. Let us all read it together as we close off this chapter and close off this book. Galatians 6, 23 and 24. And it says this, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and all of God's people says, Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearts, we pray. We ask that we shall be a people that be characterized with the fullness of the Spirit in our lives where love and joy and peace and hope and long-suffering and faith and gentleness and meekness and self-control will be exhibited in our lives to a dying world that men and women we rub shoulders with will see Christ in us. And may we be willing to be clothed with the warrior's army for God. These mercies we ask as we again give thee our coat of thankfulness, our praise, our worship, and our adoration. And it is in thy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.